We're going to be reading from Joshua 2 about God's sovereignty, his election, his love, his perseverance of his saints. So there's many lessons in here. We're going to read the whole chapter. Hear God's word. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened, as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, (coughs) that you also will show kindness (coughs) to my father's house. And give me a true token, and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, Our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be, when the Lord has given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with you. And she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Go to, get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have gone. Afterward, you may go your way. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath which you made us swear. Then she said, According to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the mountain, and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over, and they came to Joshua the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. Amen. Father, we thank you for your holy word, and I pray that you would give me faithful lips as I seek to expound it. I pray that uh, you would bless this, your people. Fill them with your grace and your joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think we're going to take two weeks to go through uh, this chapter, and today I want to focus on Rahab as an amazing trophy of God's grace. But here's the problem. Um, I already preached on every verse of this when I dealt with her biography in the Women of Faith series. And so I was pondering, do I just skip over this? Uh, But what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus in kind of a a high overlooking way at how Rahab is set forth in this uh, chapter as really a model uh, to be followed. And uh, every time that the scripture portrays or speaks about Rahab the harlot, 
It elevates this woman as a typical example of God's grace. We tend to think of her as atypical <laughs> because, uh, you know, we don't want to be lumped in with her as a dirty, rotten sinner, you know. Uh, many people tend to think she got in by the skin of her teeth, but Scripture makes no more ado about her being saved than any other Christian be- being saved. Really, that's true. It is a miracle of God's grace that any of us could achieve salvation, an absolute miracle. And that's exactly what Jesus said. He said, with man, this is impossible. And this refers to anyone being saved in the previous clause. Earlier, he had said, you know, it's easier for a rich man, uh, for uh, a, a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And the astonished disciples said, well, that's true of a rich man, then who can be saved? And Jesus agreed with them. And he said, yes, with men, this is impossible, but all things are possible uh, with God. And the Reformed Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once rebuked church members who thought that they were too good to associate with the prostitutes and others who were the rabble that were getting saved and coming into the church. They kind of looked down their noses at these... um, at these people, and this is what he said to them on one Sunday. God hath made thee, if God hath made thee anything, art thou not thereby taught that it is grace, free, sovereign grace, which hath made thee to differ? Should any here suppose themselves to be the children of God, imagine that there was some reason in them why they should have been chosen? Let them know that as yet they are in the dark concerning the first principles of grace, and have not yet learned the gospel. If ever they had known the gospel, they would, on the other hand, confess that they were less than the least, the offscouring of all things, unworthy, ill-deserving, undeserving, hell-deserving, and ascribe it all to distinguishing grace which has made them to differ, and to discriminating love which has chosen them out of the rest of the world. Great Christian, thou wouldst have been a great sinner if God had not made thee to differ. Oh, thou who art valiant for truth, thou wouldst have been as valiant for the devil if grace had not laid hold upon thee. A seat in heaven shall one day be thine, but a chain in hell would have been thine if grace had not changed thee. Thou canst now sing his love, but a licentious song might have been on thy lips if grace had not washed thee in the blood of Jesus. Thou art now sanctified, thou art quickened, thou art justified. But what wouldst thou have been? if it had not been for the interposition of the divine hand. There is not a crime thou mightest not have committed. There is not a folly into which thou mightest not have run. Even murder itself thou mightest have committed if grace had not kept thee. Thou shalt be like the angels, but thou would have been like the devil if thou hadst not been changed by grace. Therefore never be proud. All thy garments thou hast from above, rags, were thine only heritage. Be not proud, though thou hast a large estate, a wide domain of grace, thou hadst not once a single thing to call thine own except thy sin in misery. And I say amen and amen. And I could just end the sermon with that and be quite content, except for the fact that we have such a capacity for self-deception concerning our goodness that I think I really need to preach a little bit more to convince you of what uh, Spurgeon uh, was saying here. The Scripture wants us to know that God actually delights in rejecting the wise, the put-together, the powerful of this world, and choosing instead the weak, the despised, and the sin-stained of this world. And if in our ministry we, we, we have this desire to cater to the wise and the put-together and the powerful, we're not really uh, expressing the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ at all or of God the Father. Christ has said, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom before you, and the you is referring to the Pharisees, who just didn't recognize how much sin clouded their hearts and their minds. They didn't recognize it. Yet even though we know this is what the Scripture says, we know exactly what the Scripture says, some Christians still have preferences of whom they would rather choose for church membership. And uh, I would ask this question, whose house would you have sent those two spies to if you were God? 
I'm amazed at the number of books that I have read, and I've read a lot of books on Rahab, the number of books that either apologize for Rahab being a harlot or deny that she was a harlot. Um, uh, they, they try to cover over in some way the obvious depravity out of which she was saved. One commentator said that maybe Rahab used to be a harlot, but she couldn't have been a harlot in this story. No way, no way. Another claim that the Hebrew can mean innkeeper and that Rahab was an innkeeper, not a harlot. Now, even if that was the case, but it's not, uh, the Hebrew does mean harlot. Uh, there is some ambiguity there, but the New Testament makes it crystal clear by using the word porne, which is always translated as harlot or prostitute, exactly who she was, okay? Uh, why? Why are there these attempts to soften the obvious meaning of the word harlot in verse 1. I believe it's because many times people do not see themselves in Rahab. They do not see themselves as being as horrible and filthy as the Scripture insists that we are apart from God's grace. You know, and I've actually talked to people about this. When they read David's opinion that, and here he is, a mature man of grace, and he says, my sins are more than the hairs of my head, they think, surely that's hyperbole. Surely he can't really mean what he says. When they hear the Apostle Paul say that he thinks he is the chief of sinners, they say, what's Paul talking about? How could Paul possibly be the chief of sinners? But he did consider himself that way. Uh, in contrast, many of us are trying to rescue some sense of self-worth and respect compared to others. If we would once see the true depth of the sin stains that still linger in our heart, we would find in this story incredible, incredible comfort. It's a beautiful, beautiful story of God's love. I see this as a story of God's trophy of grace. She is a trophy, not a second-class citizen. And each one of you are trophies of God's grace. God chose several such people to actually be in the line that led up to uh, Christ. Rahab is the grandmother of David and the ancestor of Christ. Now, in your outlines, I called this an introduction. Uh, I decided, now, this, this is the main point. Forget your, <laughs> your outline. This is one of the main points, and it leads to the next uh, two that are in your sermon outline. The next one is that God was at work in the heart of hell. Verse 1 says, Now Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. Now perhaps next week we can analyze why Jericho would have been such a strategic uh, target to hit first. Uh, as I said before, there's a lot of principles of war, both military as well as spiritual warfare in this book, and we'll probably hit on some of those, but... There is an irony in this verse that is missed if you have not read the book of Numbers. I want you to notice where Joshua sends the spies from. It says here it's from Acacia Grove. This is not accidental. And I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 25 to find out why. So the spies in this, in this chapter here in Joshua are beginning the process of God's judgment on Canaan, but in Numbers 25, you will find that 40 years before, the Israelites were involved in exactly the same idolatry and prostitution that Canaan is now being judged for. So Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. The sins of Canaan were the very things that Israel was so prone to, and yet Israel was saved, and Canaan was judged. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall." is what the Apostle Paul says. We are not saved because of how good we are. Now, Joshua will later make the point that these Israelites were idolaters in the land of Egypt, and uh, God rescued them corporately. There's a corporate salvation. There's an individual salvation as well. He rescued them out of that. 
Uh, They were saved despite their sin, not because of any goodness that they might have. And so we need to ask, why was Israel saved and Canaan destroyed? The only thing that made the difference was sovereign grace. There's nothing in them that would warrant salvation. It was God's sovereign good pleasure alone. God chose one, he rejected the other. And on the individual basis of salvation, the same is true. Why did God choose Rahab and destroy uh, the rest of, um, uh, 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 of uh, the uh, city of Jericho? It's sovereign grace. Romans chapter 9, not the favorite passage of many Arminians, but Romans chapter 9 says God has the right to choose whom he wants and to reject whom he wants, and nobody can complain against what he has done. People bristle against that, and they say it's not fair. And we would say, no, if you really understand what sin is about, you would say it would be perfectly fair for God to reject everyone, not save anyone. That's the first lesson that we see in Joshua 2 and Romans 9. God is not obligated to save anyone. But there is a further irony in Joshua 1, verse 1. In the very place that Satan made Israel to fall, God's grace was going to give them a renewed victory. And I love this aspect of his grace. This is very cool. In the very sin of harlotry that almost destroyed Israel, God is going to demonstrate his grace by saving a harlot. And to me, this teaches that there is no debauchery that is too low for God to be able to rescue a person from it. There is no hellhole too deep for God to be able to rescue someone from it. I have a a relative who has recently come out as a lesbian. And I have another relative that just recently, you know, the family's trying to push them into a trans uh, uh, lifestyle. And I, I look at that, and it's very, very discouraging. And I have to remind myself, we serve a God who can save to the uttermost. That's what I lay hold of. Now, why do scholars <clears throat> consider Jericho to have been a hellhole? <laughs> And why did God say that absolutely everything in that city had to be destroyed? Well, when you start studying the culture of Canaan, and I don't recommend it, actually. You just feel defiled after you study it. But if you understand the culture of Canaan, you will understand that it was far more debased than our present culture is. That's hard to believe, as bad as America has become. But it was far, far worse. The literature of the time shows slasher porn and bestiality and sadism and cruelty and murder and especially child sacrifice, and I won't get into the more horrible things that they're involved in, but archaeological digs show numerous pots containing the bones of older children and of babies that were sacrificed to Baal. And so in a sense, that's beginning to happen in America, you know, with abortion. Um, uh, you, You see pornography all through the Canaanite uh, culture, and that is definitely happening here. The temples of Baal and Ashtaroth, his uh, consort, were filled with vile images. Literature translated goes into graphic detail of the extravagant orgies and delight in filth and necrophilia, other sexual practices of the Canaanites. But here is where they were were far worse than, than America. All Canaanites were required by their religion to participate in those temple prostitution rituals. That was a culture that was ripe for judgment. Secondly, Rahab was a woman in a culture that debased women as sexual objects and abused women. She had no doubt been abused by many others, and my biography on Rahab gets into that and shows how rescuing women out of prostitution is a very difficult, but it's a very gratifying um, ministry, and I believe it's a ministry that is near and dear to the heart of God. Third, she and her house were probably poor. It may be part of the reason her family pimped her out, but most commentators simply point to the fact she had flax on her roof to show that she had to supplement her income. But the fact that she was a prostitute in a culture that had no inhibitions or restraints of law made Rahab even more subject to abuse than other women. And yet God saved her. 
didn't save her because she was more receptive to the gospel than other people. He did not save her because she deserved a break. There were many other women who probably were abused as well, and they were all destroyed in, in Canaan. It was God's sovereign good pleasure alone that led the two spies to her house rather than to any other house. Sovereign grace, pure and simple. And this ought to give comfort to those of you who come from very rough uh, <clears throat> backgrounds. God saves us despite ourselves. He saves us out of our own personal hell holes. He saves us because of how good he is, not because of how good we are. And this ought to also instruct us on where God's heart lies. Christ could have been chosen to be born into a king's palace. He was, after all, a king, right? Destined to become a king. But he did not get born into Herod's household with a silver spoon in his mouth. He chose instead to be born into abject poverty and to be born in Nazareth, which was the hellhole of, of Israel. And he did that uh, to give hope to people from such backgrounds. He chose to minister to tax collectors and prostitutes because such trophies of grace diminish the pride of man, something God loves to do, and hugely exalt his glory and the wonders of his grace. And we, too, ought to be open to reaching anyone for Christ. Now, let me talk about the risk of this. Was there risk of disease when they went into that house? Uh, having studied, unfortunately, a lot of the uh, culture when I was in college of uh, Canaan, I would say there was huge risk in going into that city, into that uh, house. Uh, it's one of the reasons why Jericho and everything in it, including the animals, we won't get into the reasons why, were burned but they took that risk. Was there risk of the two spies being misinterpreted and slandered? Yes, there was. Um, now, they helped to cover themselves by going together, you know, the two of them. But even to this day, there are liberals who slander the name of these two uh, righteous uh, spies. Um, I'll, I'll just give you uh, one example. Um, uh, some of these liberals have taken the last two words of verse 1 as referring to sexual intercourse. Uh, one says, though the narrative does not say they slept with her, the verb nevertheless may be understood as the first of several potential sexual innuendos in this story. Uh, Hawk is more uh, dogmatic. He says, both spies engaged in forbidden activity with the very people who are to be destroyed. That is absolutely false. Literally it says, so they went came to the house of the harlot named Rahab and laid down there. But if you look at verse 8, you'll find out where they laid down. It wasn't in her bed. It was up on the roof. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof, etc. So before they lay down, she witnesses to them of her saving faith, of her conversion. They witnessed to her of God's covenant love. So they, they took precautions, but misinterpretations can always occur. So here's my next question. What kinds of risks are you willing to take for the sake of the gospel? When you find trophies of God's grace like Rahab, it will all be worthwhile. Michael, Bill, and others are making opportunities for any one of us to be spies going into Jericho to seek to rescue the Rahabs that are in our city. Are we willing to go into lesser hell holes to rescue people by God's grace? The next two points, we'll look at the kind of work that God did in her life. Next point is that God turned Rahab into a model of faith. And I actually, I find her faith uh, to be incredibly challenging to my own faith. Uh, let me read you the description of her in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Interestingly, Hebrews puts the blame on the Canaanites for not believing. It says they did not believe. So there must, they must have known something that they disbelieved. They did not believe. Now, it's true, they were never offered escape, but it puts the blame on them for not believing something. In contrast, it says she believed before the spies came because she received them into her house with peace. So in her heart, she had already sided with them and with their God. 
She stands out to the writer of Hebrews as one of the foremost examples of biblical faith. So how did that happen? Did God give her a special revelation, you know, some kind of a vision or something? How did she come to faith? And I want to take a look at some hints of her biblical faith in this passage. We looked at a lot more in her biography, but I just want to give a high-level view today. Verse 4 says that she hid the spies. Now, that was taking a huge risk in that country. You understand that uh, this was treason uh, all throughout uh, that um, Middle East section back then to ever harbor uh, spies. You would instantly have the death penalty. So she took a risk of being executed and for sure having the hatred of her fellow Jerichoites. Um, She sided with God, not with her earthly king. So have you evidenced faith by siding with God when God is not popular? It's a good question to ask ourselves. It's not enough to believe that God is powerful or even the most powerful. Verse 11 says, hey, the Canaanites believed that. Okay, they believed God uh, was uh, very powerful. Verse um, 11, uh, you know, indicates that, but they still lacked saving faith. Hebrews says they did not believe. And too many Christians are content with believing certain facts about God, but faith always takes sides. Faith is willing to go against the current. Faith is always more concerned with what God thinks of us than it is with what man thinks of us. Do you have genuine faith of this saved harlot or the false faith of self-righteous Pharisees? Another hint of her faith is seen in verses 8 through 9. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. As you read along, you realize, whoa, this woman knows a lot. She's been a spy of sorts herself, or the Lord's given her revelation, but she knows a lot about them. We don't know how old she was, how she got this information, but the Israelites have been in the nearby desert for 40 years, and she has taken the trouble to investigate who their God is. She evidences faith by saying, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and Lord is in all capital letters. Anytime you see that, it's the covenant name, Yehoah. That's amazing. How did she know that name? Uh, She has not only taken the trouble to investigate what information there is about this God, she is convinced of its truth. She has confidence God will win the battles simply because he said he would win the battles. Do you have this kind of faith? The other Canaanites, even though they're scared to death, still resisted, which means they still had a vain hope that they had a chance if you think there's even the slightest chance that God, God's word is in error, you do not have her kind of faith. Romans 3, 4 says, Let God be true, but every man a liar. 1 John 5, 10 says, He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given. It's basically saying, if you don't believe certain portions of the Bible, you're calling God a liar. And how can a person who calls God a liar really have a saving faith? Because how can you trust a God who lies? Can you really have saving faith? There are many people out there who claim to be Christians, yet who say that the Bible is mistaken in many areas, mistaken on archaeological facts and on creation or on its position of women or is mistaken on on economics. Well, I'm sorry, that means that they are really not that much different than the Canaanites who believed much of what God said, but not all of it. Do you have saving faith or the counterfeit of the world? I've always believed it is incompatible with true faith to treat any portion of the Bible as in error. Just say, no, no, that's a part of the Bible I don't believe. Now, that would be to call God a liar on some points. A belief in biblical inerrancy, I think, is an essential ingredient of true faith. Now, I'll get hate mail over this one, too. I think the Scripture demands it. Uh, By the way, there are very few things we require members to believe. They have to believe in the Trinity, you know, salvation by justification. But one of the things is inerrancy. We think that's an absolutely imperative foundation for church membership. A third hint of her faith is that she sees their helplessness before such a God of judgment. It takes faith to agree that there's no point in resisting God. Uh, Starting to read at the middle of verse 9. And that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. 
So all the Canaanites were faint-hearted, but only Rahab submitted and gave an unconditional peace treaty. And actually, I take that back because God saves an entire tribe of Canaanites called the Gibeonites. We'll get into that later. And they have a genuine faith. We'll look at that another time. But faith is not necessarily present simply because your heart is melting for fear over hell or melting for fear over God's other judgments. Pagans often fear. That doesn't save them. Faith goes beyond that. Faith capitulates to God, surrenders to God, submits to God. Do you have saving faith or only a counterfeit? I'm using Rahab's, uh, the character of her faith, to challenge our own. Saving faith submits in unconditional surrender to God because faith believes God unequivocally. Fourth, she shows faith by turning to God rather than despairing as the rest did. Verse 11, now as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. Despair is the very opposite of faith. Too many Christians despair of victory over sin. They despair of whether they can find forgiveness with God. Perhaps they think they're too bad to be forgiven. I usually tell them, boy, if you think that, you still don't understand how bad you really are, <laughs> that you're too bad to be forgiven. No, a person with true faith will not despair. No matter how bad the situation might be, he turns to God. Who else can he turn to or she? And God includes every kind of sinner in the Bible to give hope to sinners that they too can be forgiven. And so you got the murderer Moses and you got the adulterer David. And there's Manasseh, the, the, the most wicked king of Israel, engaged in idolatry and witchcraft and child sacrifice. And yet if you look at Second Chronicles, um, first 13 verses, I think, of chapter 33, he is soundly converted out of an absolutely desperate, depraved condition. There's Zacchaeus, the fraudulent, cheating tax collector. There's Paul, the persecutor of Christians. There are people involved in incest and homosexuality, lying. All of them saved by grace alone. Fifth, she shows faith by identifying with the only God, the exclusive God of the Bible. Verse 9, that the Lord. Again, Lord in all capital letters. Second half of verse 11, for the Lord your God. So as already mentioned in both verses, the word for Lord is in all capital letters. It's the covenant name Yehoah. She does not talk about God in general, God as we understand him, the higher power, you know, whoever that may be, or the generic God of Alcoholics Anonymous, or the nondescript God of school pairs. He believes in the God as he reveals himself. And when you do that, you are hated by Satan and all of his hosts. Have you ever noticed that uh, people are okay with public prayers so long as Jesus' name is not mentioned because that's immediately exclusionary. Uh, on July 4, when we were partying, uh, Joel was reminding me of uh, a, a black delegate to the Republican County Convention. Joel and I had been uh, uh, elected to go there. And uh, he was asked to pray and he was praying in the name of Jesus, in no other name but the name of Jesus. He went on and on. And I really believe that God was pleased with that prayer. And God is nauseated with the prayers of people that are no offense to those who hold to other gods. There's no antithesis whatsoever. So here's my next question. Do you soften your talk about God to what is politically acceptable? Are you ashamed to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, then you're failing to evidence the kind of faith that Rahab had. Listen to what Christ said about such shame. Mark 8, 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Sixth, she evidences no dichotomy of life. She doesn't trust God when in church and then switch to other things being trusted in the marketplace. She says, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Okay, hallelujah. She understands that the God of the Hebrews is quite different than the God of the Canaanites. God of the Canaanites, they had jurisdictions, you know, that they were God over. This God created everything. He has no jurisdiction. He's the jurisdiction over everything, right? Uh, he is the Lord over everything. 
Well, there is a controversy in the modern church called the carnal Christian theory, and proponents of that theory say you can accept Christ as Savior and reject him as Lord. Another way of saying that is you can get the free ticket on the train to heaven and the whole trip say, God, you're not welcome on this train. I'm not going to have you here, and you're still going to get to heaven. That's the carnal Christian theory, excluding God's lordship. Well, I'm sorry, but all such folks are unsaved. You either trust God for life and eternity, or you have not trusted him at all. There are others, and I'm going to get in trouble even bringing this up, but there are others who hold to the radical two-kingdom theory that denies the authority of Scripture over economics, politics, business, or anything else except for personal faith and church. I'm sorry, that is a different religion than the religion of the Bible. I'll just be blunt. It is a different religion. And I'll get a lot of hate mail over this, but I think Hudson Taylor was absolutely correct. Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. If you are the slave, the bond slave of God, you can't pick and choose. He's the master who dictates. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says, you don't belong to yourself since you were bought with a price. So do you have the faith of Rahab or do you exclude God's right to be Lord of certain parts of your life or certain parts of our society? That's a pressing issue. I will say that Rahab is a better Christian than some reformed people that I know who exclude Christ's lordship from the state, education, and the rest of culture. Now, Scripture says he is Lord of all, and faith submits to that, does not argue with that. Now, I will grant that there can be inconsistencies in, in our life, and God alone knows, you know, the state of a person's heart who is caught up in that kind of theology, and uh, maybe they're just inconsistent, but we should flee from any system that self-consciously rejects the Bible from spheres of our life. That is an unbelievably scary system to be in. But the last point is that her faith led to good works. Not only did God work in the heart of hell and secondly turn Rahab into a model of faith, but God also turned Rahab into a model of good works. Galatians 5, 6 says that what really matters is whether we have a genuine, quote, faith working through love. Faith works. It's a loving work, but it works. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 speaks of the work of faith. Faith doesn't just justify us. It continues to work out a personal holiness, what we call sanctification. In 2 Thessalonians 1.11, Paul says the same thing as James uh, when he speaks of, quote, the work of faith with power. Yes, good works need God's grace, need God's power, but faith is going to receive that power, which means it's going to eventually produce good works in our lives. Let me read you from James 2, verses 21 through 25, where James uses two Old Testament illustrations to show that saving faith will always, always, always result in good works. In other words, you can't separate justification from sanctification. You distinguish them, but they can't be separated. Or as James emphasizes, sanctification demonstrates that we are justified. Okay, in verse 21, James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? Now, before I get into Rahab's works, let me explain this whole issue of justification by works. It's really a pretty simple uh, explanation. There are four dimensions to justification. And by the way, justification means to be declared not only innocent of, of sin, but to be perfectly righteous. That could only happen with the imputed righteousness of Christ being legally credited to our name. So why did the reformers speak of four dimensions of justification? Let me go over them. First, we are justified meritoriously by Christ alone. In other words, he earned the righteousness, not us. And you see this over and over again in Scripture. Uh, speaking of Jesus as God's righteous servant, Isaiah 53, 11 says, By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So we are declared just meritoriously in the death of Christ, according to Isaiah 53, 11. Jesus merited legally gave us the right to be declared just. And everything needed for our justification flows from his atonement. 
Some people say this is the ground of our justification or the basis of our justification. Okay, second, Romans 5.1 and Acts 13 verse 39 says that we are justified mediately by faith. The word mediately means, simply means faith is the means that receives, lays hold of Christ's justification that was already purchased. And the error is passive indicates it's a one-time justification that happens to us, not something that we do. And Acts 13, 39 says, we are justified at that precise moment from all things, past, present, and future sins. We're justified from all of that, right? That justification is received by faith alone. So we're justified meritoriously uh, by Christ alone. Second, we, we are justified mediately by faith alone. Third, the moment we put our faith in Christ, Romans 8.33 says we are justified by God judicially. Okay, the word judicially means there's a legal courtroom declaration of God. He's the one who makes the declaration of not guilty and perfectly righteous. So we're justified, let me repeat that, meritoriously by Christ. In other words, he, it's, it's on the basis of what Christ has done. We are justified immediately by faith. It's the means that receives it. We're justified judicially by God. And then fourth, James 2.21 says that in addition to Abraham's justification by faith alone, which James agrees with, that happened 40 years earlier, Abraham was justified evidentially by works, since works is what gives evidence to other creatures that we have a saving faith that has laid claim to Christ's work. When James 2.24 says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only, Here's a critical grammatical point you guys need to understand, and gals. It's an ad, adverb, not an a- adjective, okay? If it was an adjective, it would say he's not justified by faith alone. He does not say that. And what he's saying is that there are two kinds of justification. Earlier, without any merit whatsoever, He was justified 40 years before at the age of 85. Now, 40 years later, he is also, there's another justification, he is justified by works. So we have to distinguish those two. And James says that both Abraham and Rahab are excellent examples of both justification by faith alone and justification by works, which shows or demonstrates that we are saved. So James is basically saying, if you've been saved, Christ now dwells in your heart, you're going to immediately begin acting differently. And I just read some verses from Paul that says the same things. Okay, with that whole issue out of the way, um, what are some of the works that uh, show that Rahab engaged in good works? Well, first James says that receiving the spies and sending them out another way was evidence of a faith that works. In Joshua 1.12, Rahab words it that she had shown them kindness, and the word for kindness is the Hebrew word chesed, which means covenant love. Okay, wherever there is genuine faith, there's going to be a genuine love implanted in the heart by God. Galatians 5.6 speaks of faith working through love. And if you look up in a concordance the words faith and love, you will see the two really are linked many, many times. Well, what is love? It's defined as keeping God's commandments, right? And so uh, it is good works. Are you moved by God's grace to holiness of life? Are you moved to serve him? Without works, James says your faith is useless. It is dead. Okay, it is uh, it's a worthless faith. She was not saved by her good works. And Joshua makes that very crystal clear. She was a sinner. She had nothing, nothing by which she could merit salvation. God doesn't say clean up your act and then I will save you. That's legalism. God approaches the lost sinner, gives her faith, immediately justifies her, and then proves that she is justified by sanctifying her. Okay, God seeks the lost to save them. God is interested in sinners, not self-righteous people. Rahab was a sinner before she was justified, and immediately she was a saint who continued to sin, but she was a saint after her justification. What matters is who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for the sinner. Will I humble myself and trust in Christ alone to save me? But beyond that, is my unconditional surrender to him sincere? If it is, there's automatically going to be changes in our lives. There will be growth. You're you're, you're not going to be holding out on him. 
But I think Hebrews and James both make clear that her concealing the truth from the authorities was also good works and was not a violation of the ninth commandment. How did she let the men out a different way? By concealing the truth from the authorities. Second, by hiding the men, another form of concealing the truth. And then thirdly, by letting the men down in a way that would hide the truth from their presence yet again from the authorities. And every step of that process was concealing the truth from those who would misuse the truth. Now that may seem shocking to you, but it's true nonetheless. Her concealing of the truth is just as praised as was that of the midwives in Egypt who concealed the truth from Pharaoh when he told them to kill the babies as soon as they were born. Here's what Exodus says happened when they refused. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt dealt well with the midwives. So it was because they sided with God by hiding the truth from the enemies that God blessed them. Concealing the truth is different than lying, and I've made a mistake in this regard, and I ask forgiveness for it. Uh, In the past, I said lying is justified based on these scriptures, but Peter Allison has written a fabulous paper that I recommend all of you read uh, that shows, no, God never lies. We're supposed to imitate him. It's impossible for God to lie. We cannot lie. So concealing the truth is different than lying. And uh, you can get into that paper for, uh, for... But anyway, this is puzzled. It still puzzles people. How can concealing the truth be okay? Here's the point. God's word defines when the ninth commandment is violated, just like it does the sixth commandment. It's not up to us to arbitrarily define the Ten Commandments. We must look to his case law applications. Otherwise, we might think that thou shalt not kill means we can't butcher animals or we can't engage in self-defense, we can't go to war, state shouldn't engage in capital punishment. No, it doesn't, the scripture doesn't say that. Other scriptures define the rest of the Ten Commandments, and the same is true of thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's the normal course of things, but when you are being attacked in war, Concealing the truth is not only permissible, it is actually mandated by God. So, for example, if um, there is some army that's come to fight against you, I need to be truthful, let's send two delegates to that army and tell them all the tactics we're going to use tomorrow. No, no army is going to do that. You conceal the truth, right, Uh, from those people. And so here's my application of all that we have just gone through. We must define good works the way the Bible does, or we elevate our mind above the Bible. We cannot take one statement and absolutize it above all others. And this is what's happened in the pro-life movement, where people say, if you're consistently pro-life, then you have to be opposed to capital punishment, or you have to be opposed to to war. I say, no, I only want to be pro-life in the way that God wants me to be pro-life, right? Uh, I stand up for the life of the unborn, but not for the life of the murderer, because God says we should do the exact opposite. So we must be ever so careful to have the genuine good works of Scripture rather than the substitute good works of fundamentalism that adds all kinds of rules and regulations, like don't drink, don't smoke, don't wear makeup, don't wear jewelry. You know, when I was growing up, we'd visit churches where they would say that... um, Uh, drinking any wine like, uh, you know, most of us did at the communion table here is a sin. And even as a kid, I was thinking, well, Jesus drank wine. He's not a sinner. I I just didn't buy that. That seemed a little bit weird. Uh, Another church that I was a member of for quite some time said it's a sin for men to, to grow beards. I thought, well, they plucked out Jesus's beard. I mean, he wasn't a sinner. You see where I'm going on this? Uh, It's so easy to begin to add to Scripture, and when we do that, we are failing to follow Rahab as a model of genuine good works. Just as there can be fake faith, there can be fake good works. That's the point. And there are other examples of good works in this chapter, but I think I dealt with them adequately in the biography of her. But let me end with just one more. Notice her love for her lost family and her love and commitment to her new spiritual brothers and sisters. 
Verse 12 says, Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that's covenant love, chesed, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. Not only was she willing to join the new spiritual family, she wanted her whole physical family to join this new spiritual family as well despite the fact that we saw in the biography that some of them probably had sexually abused her and for sure uh, pimped her out. Genuine faith moves us to evangelism. What kind of concern do you have for the salvation and the welfare of your lost loved ones? Our whole church should pray for each other's lost loved ones. This is something I think we need to really emphasize. And we should have faith. This is God's normal way of functioning. Saving people out of paganism in the first place, that's the extraordinary. But then God says, ordinarily, I'm going to be saving the entire family. This is the way God worked in Israel, but it's the way God worked in her life and in so many other people's lives. Let me just give you some examples in the New Testament. Over and over, you see a person coming to faith and then the whole household coming to faith. And so you can think of the household of Cornelius, of Gaius, of Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, Lydia, the Philippian jailer. Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Yeah, the, I'm emotional because this past week I've been so convicted about lack of prayer for not my household, but distant relatives who are unsaved. And recommitting to reaching out and praying. We can be saved and still lack the kind of passion that we had when we were first saved. When we're first saved, you see this coming out in, in you. We're so excited. We want to share Christ with everybody. But we do need to cry out to God and pour, that he would pour out more of his grace and compassion in us. Rahab is a model of good works by longing for the salvation of her household. But she's also a model of good works by loving her new family of Israel, God's people. So she switched loyalties from the world to the church. So here's another question. Do you love God's people in the church? First John says uh, it, we can't even claim to love God if we don't love the brethren. It just one follows from the other. And we'll stop there. But I hope this morning you have been challenged and encouraged by the life of Rahab once again. When you see men and women like Rahab being saved out of the mud and being transformed and sanctified, it challenges our growth. And really, it's my prayer that we would win to Christ many Rahabs, many people in the years to come, that our church, just like Spurgeon's church, would begin to fill up with people being saved out of the hell holes of life. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for the incredible salvation that you wrought in Rahab. Thank you for the incredible salvation that you wrought in our lives. We know that we are utterly, utterly undeserving. But Father, we love you. We love you for your great salvation. And I pray that you would help us to love others to develop a passion to share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with everyone that we come into contact with. Stir up within this congregation a holy zeal to share our faith, whether it's individually or on a team, in whatever ways that we do it. But Father, I pray you would stir our hearts to be like saved Rahab. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.